1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler-Holtz, and today we'll be talking with Sarah E. Stroller, author of Inventing the Working Parent, Work, Gender, Feminism, in Neoliberal Britain. How are you doing today?
0: Very well. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project?
0: Of course, um, my my background is as an academic historian, and um, I grew up in Berkeley, California, sort of living in in amidst the legacies of the 1960s and 70s. So I think I've always had an interest in in those areas. Um, and when I was a graduate student, and I started to conceptualize this project, I wanted to write about something that would allow me to look at the gendered experience of time um, and to consider the experience of work kind of across all meanings of work, so paid, unpaid, and the sort of work of the self that we're all constantly engaged in as well. Um, and this project also came specifically out of the sense that we're sort of living in a time-scarce, 24-7 culture of work and feeling frustrated with that. And, and I think also the sense that the ideas of second wave feminism have somehow been lost despite the fact that the language of women's empowerment has proliferated in the, in the period in which I've been alive. Um, We talk about living in an era of work-life balance and family friendliness and equality. And yet the actual experience of living doesn't always seem to match that. So that's sort of those preoccupations that I've always had are are what informed this project.
1: You started the book by saying something about a two thousand. American psychologist book and her observation. Can you tell the audience about this?
0: Yeah, she, um, Daphne DeMarva, she wrote a a book in the early 2000s that basically suggested that it's become almost stigmatized for women of a certain class and socioeconomic status to want to be mothers. And I think that that observation struck with me. It seemed to me to be very true. Um, and sort of fascinating historically, you know, inconceivable in the mid 20th century that women would be almost almost uh, regarded with, with sort of skepticism for their desire to be parents. I mean, I think it's really culturally complicated. I think we, on the one hand, and in, in, in her context is, you know, Western societies, and I think um, particularly the United States, and it's, it's certainly true in, in Britain, too, that on the one hand, we sort of valorize motherhood in our culture, and on the other hand... We expect women to work like men have worked, um, since you know, certainly since the late nineteenth century in, in and that doesn't really leave space for parenthood. So I think we're in a particularly intense and confusing moment in terms of the kind of expectations that mothers in particular are saddled with. Um and yeah, I found her observation really striking.
1: Now, you did a lot of research. Can you tell the audience about your method of doing this research?
0: Yeah, this project re- was um, involved working with and kind of recuperating a lot of unconventional archives. Um, you know, a lot of historical research, you're, you're ruffling through, you know, library collections, and there's there was some of that here for sure. But, you know, in part, it's a very contemporary history. I start in the 1970s. Um, and so that, that already affected the sort of source material that I would, would have, would have potentially had access to. But I also was looking at a lot of stories that are not completely contained within conventional archives or are not contained at all within conventional archives. So there were various things. I mean, this, the research consisted of me going to nonprofits and sort of looking in their closets, um, and their own papers, which hadn't necessarily been of interest to historians before and, and hadn't ended up in libraries, um, also, you know, going to activists and former activists' houses and climbing around their attics. Um, I did a lot of oral histories, too, both to kind of figure out where to look for more conventional sources and also to understand the gaps in the published sources. Um, and, you know, in some some cases I was in using conventional archives. I was at, you know, various business archives um, where I could sort of trace how feminist activism was received and, and reshaped in the workplace. Um And then there was some sort of cultural archives, too, looking at newspapers and magazines. So there was there's a real range here. And and the research for this, I think it was, for me, very cool and exciting to be working both in traditional archives, but also outside of them.
1: Work and parents in Britain. Do mothers really need to work? Tell us about what's really going on with that um, in terms of financials.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the period that I'm writing about from the, you know, beginning in the 1970s, absolutely a key piece of the story that I tell is that families could no longer really survive on on one income. And when I say that, I mean middle-class families, you know, working-class families have always survived on multiple incomes. And in, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, it was sort of an exceptional moment where some, although not as many as people think middle class families were able to survive on just one income. and over the course of the 70s, 80s and certainly up to the present, it's become increasingly difficult um, for families to rely just on one income. And you know the vast majority of women in the UK like in the US work for pay outside of the home as well as continuing to shoulder the disproportionate, um, burden of, of childcare and work within the home burden. And also I would say (laughs) opportunities of it too. I think that can be sort of, um, simplifying, but I, but I do think that, um, a big piece of, of the story is that this moment where feminists, Articulated a desire to, you know, women having a desire to work and have careers overlapped with a period in which women absolutely needed to work. Um, Middle class women to an ever greater degree.
1: In your book, you talk about certain situations that had an impact on women. What happened with women in deindustrialization?
0: Um, I mean, this is a this is a, a related story. Um, the the sort of deindustrialization that is, is a is one framework for thinking about the economic, political economic set of changes that transformed Britain's economy from a primarily industrial economy to, a, you know, what we would think of as a more knowledge economy in the late 20th century, um, that affected women in a variety of ways. I mean, it, part of it is related to the story we were just talking about, that as industrial jobs in Britain disappeared, those had been very stable jobs, and, you know, for for primarily men, um, that placed new pressure on women as earners. At the same time, I think the rise of the knowledge economy that sort of overlapped with and followed from that, um, created both new opportunities for women and also new, you know, new challenges. Um, things like the banking industry really grew in this period. And, you know, there, there are ways in which, Certain, quote unquote, soft skills that are associated with or have historically been associated primarily with women during that period really took on a new kind of value. And then there were ways in which, you know, women began to fill new sort of um, roles in the in the growing service economy, too. So there was sort of a, a bifurcation, I suppose, of what was previously a fairly industrial economy to one that was a knowledge economy um in some ways in a service economy in others and, and women, women could sort of, um, be winners in that new system and also losers in that new system, if that makes sense.
1: Uh, Tell us more about the female dominated jobs that the women had doing this time period that you're looking at.
0: Um, the major sectors for women's work, um, over the course of the 70s, 80s and 90s, I think, you know, things, many of them are traditionally areas in which women have been important healthcare, education, service, and that continued to be the case. And it's still the case that we have a very structurally um, divided workforce in terms of the kinds of jobs that men and women are more likely to occupy. And I think, you know, that, that does matter, because a lot of the activism that I talk about, it happened in the context of, of, particular types of labor, you know, during this period, for example, um, local government grew and in in size and bureaucracy. And those were jobs that were, um, I think disproportionately occupied by women.
1: Now you talk about Thatcher's budget cuts. Again, how did this have an impact on the women working?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. In so many different ways. I mean, the focus of a lot of my story is really feminist campaigns to reimagine what work is, what role work could play in the lives of parents, what work could and couldn't deliver. And um, so I write about feminist activism for childcare and feminist activism for flexible work. And, you know, the a lot of this activism took place in, you know, in a period of dwindling financial support and resources. So in the 1970s, when feminists began coming together in a really organized way to fight for um, greater state support for childcare more uh, and to sort of reimagine what that could look like, there were quite a few opportunities to fund those efforts. You know, the greater London council, um, which was the, you know, local government body that, for the london uh, for London at that time was was heavily funded and was giving enormous amounts of money to um, left political projects and socially oriented projects. And so feminist campaigners who were really set on changing some of the things that were really difficult for parents, not just women, but um, for parents and for women in the workplace were benefiting a lot from those financial resources. So one big way that the cut, the cuts under Thatcher affected um, the the folks that I wrote write about uh, was simply just there were fewer resources available to support this kind of activism. And I think that that's really critical. Um, so that's one piece. And then and then in some more specific ways, you know, I write about feminist campaigns for job sharing, and that's a really clear example of where a very inspiring I think very left-wing progressive idea about reorganizing work so that it works for people's lives was sort of conflated with you know a, a conservative political economic project that it was really about um, you know uh, job splitting so turning full-time jobs that were delivering people's stable stable salaries into into two in order to basically uh, keep un- unemployment figures down so it, yeah, the, the the machinations of politics um, on that sort of top-down level, I would say, like to to generalize, it affected the accessibility of activism for activists and left projects, and it also, in some cases, really came up in specific ways against ideas that were otherwise very progressive, but could sort of be re-signified in that context of conservative um, political agenda. Yeah.
1: Tell us about the daycare problems in Britain and how the parents are, you know, activists um, really tried to get more daycare.
0: Yeah, there was, you know, historically, you know, we think of wartime Britain when there were state-funded, well-funded state nurseries for, you know, many, many children is really the exception to the rule. Um, Historically, there had been really no... Uh, consistent state funding for under fives childcare in the UK, much like the, much like the U S and, um, and in contrast to, to Western Europe. And so a big focus of activism in the, from the 1970s onward was creating more childcare places, um, both because women needed to work and because women wanted to work. And because sometimes parents needed breaks to do other things like participate in political activism. And so, there was a great political will within the kind of very broad umbrella of second wave feminism um, to make headway with creating more childcare places. It was also about reimagining what childcare could be. Um, it was, you know, quite stigmatized in the middle of the 20th century for women to send their ch- middle class women to have their children in care, and I think there was a lot of optimism among broadly feminist thinkers about what childcare could deliver both, both, you know, community for children and also kind of functioning as an equalizing opportunity for children across different ethnic, racial backgrounds. Um, socioeconomic backgrounds was a big part of uh, activism in that, in that period. And I think a very, uh, very hopeful period. And it's easy to forget it um, because by the 1980s, there were big conflicts surrounding race and race in particular among childcare activists. But there was this very hopeful moment in the seventies where, um, even across, across race and socioeconomic costs, there were efforts to really change the way that childcare looked, I think are really worth remembering.
1: Now you also brought up the, the no fault divorce, more working women. What's the relationship between no fault divorce and more working women?
0: Um, yeah, the that's a, I'm not sure I have a ton to say on that question. I think that um, this period in which I'm writing about these topics, there, you know, there was a divorce was a growing phenomenon. Um, and specifically, you know, historically there had to be a, a, someone had to be at fault to, to achieve a divorce. And so, basically divorce law was liberalized in this period, um, making divorce more accessible to more people. And so um, there were there was a rise in the number of single families, um, single parent families, and m- most of which were, were headed by women. Um, and so, again, it's just sort of one other factor that was pushing more women into work. And also, I think, um, you know, part of a story of changing family structures and changing ideas about, you know, what, <laughs> what social equality could look like. And yeah, it's, it's kind of connected in that way.
1: Second wave feminism, combining work and family. What are some of the, the issues that you found were associated with this?
0: Um, with combining the sort of challenges of combining work and family. Yes. Yeah, I mean they're huge and I think they'll be familiar to almost anybody, you know, who's a parent and works today or has in the last 50 years. I mean, it's so difficult, you know, the with with two parents in a household working and, you know, with the the kind of rigidity of traditional work structures that you know, women, the women who I write about um at the beginning of the book who who started to advocate for change in the in the workplace in the 70s, they were they were generally women who were the first in their generation to go to college. Um, they were broadly speaking, motivated by having professional and career, you know, having careers and professional interests, not just by making money. And and that's, that's to do with the rise of work for middle-class women. Of course, working class women had, had always been working. Um, And so they, you know, the the women who I write about who became activists for changes in in the structure of work, they were um, very hopeful about work, they wanted to work, they were pursuing work that they felt had a social value, I, you know, I write about one woman who was a city planner, and another woman who um, was working as a social worker. So they were broadly speaking, women who are optimistic about um, work and wanted to work to deliver to deliver you know social change and yet when they found themselves working and and caring for young children at the same time they were totally overwhelmed and you know <laughs> didn't want to work full-time wanted to have time with their kids or did want to work full-time but were constantly dealing with housework you know and never having a break and and all of those things that are familiar to us and so they they looked at this they looked at this picture and rather than saying children are the problem and caring work is the problem they said work is the problem we we can't we can't work you know 40 hour weeks 9 to 5 jobs with rigid inflexible structures and be expected to also do all of the care work at home and so their hope was to change work paid work to support life outside of work but they also wanted to change the division of labor at home they they wanted to shift um The responsibility that was, you know, almost entirely falling to women in those days, still to be more equally shared in households.
1: In chapter two, you talk about flexible work as being the answer. Is that really the answer to the problems? And
0: no, I mean, and I don't think that the activists I wrote about thought it was either. Um, They looked at work and they thought something has to change. What are what are a range of ways that we could change the structure or the nature of work to allow for for very broadly speaking more flexibility to make it work for people's lives but the way that we think of flexibility now as basically do your do your nine to five job but do it when you want you can do it at night after your kids are asleep that's not what they wanted um they were interested in rethinking work um uh, more broadly than that or, or more or <laughs> the word is more like they were, they were more radical than that is what I'm trying to say. Um, not everyone, but many, many activists were more radical than that. So, for example, the idea of job sharing was to split one job into two jobs, um, both with equal benefits, but split pay so that, for example, two individuals who were nurses could share one post and, and each would work part-time, but they would have the benefits of full-time benefits and also... Um, the accessibility of professional work. So I think so often, you know, part-time work was available to women and is available to women, but so often it's service work. And these were women who had educations and wanted to continue in their professions, but were unable to find part-time work. So that was one way that they thought about changing the structure of work to allow them to remain in professional fields, but have um, more time outside of work. You know, they were also interested in things like flexible hours and, you know, not in the 70s, but with the rise of computer technology by the 80s and 90s, interested in things like telecommuting. Um, but, yeah, they they were also interested in reduce, reducing work hours overall, so campaigning for shorter work weeks, 35-hour weeks, 30-hour weeks. But, but the main focus of the activists I write about was job sharing. Um, but, yeah, so we think of flexibility now as being, you know, the way that I the way that I think many of us think of it now is the way that it manifests in the, in the, you know, contemporary corporate world or the tech, the tech industry, um, where people, you know, routinely work 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. And that's not what they were hoping for.
1: In chapter three, you talk about the equal opportunity framework. What else more about that?
0: Equal opportunities. I, you know, the, a big piece of the story I tell is about The way in which feminist ideas about changing childcare and about changing the nature of work, both paid and unpaid, how those ideas were then absorbed by, incorporated into affected institutions. And so I look at the public sector in chapter three, um, and I look at it mainly through the example of Camden Council in London. And, you know, it was a very, this was, you know, in an era of basically still there being left funding around um, the council was very progressive and they really took on board a lot of the ideas of activists about childcare and um, changing work structures. And when I say a lot, I mean, they did to a greater degree than many other, many other organizations, institutions, Um and so Camden instituted uh, an on, on-site daycare facility for kids under five, um, and they also had job sharing and other kinds of structures around adapting work to fit better with people's lives. But in, in, in the case of Camden, it was part of this new sort of equal opportunities agenda that emerged in the late 70s and early 80s, where... They did these things in accordance with a very specific set of values around promoting equality, promoting diversity, um, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, a little bit thinking about sexuality, but not so much um, yet. And it was a really progressive framework. And, you know, even in Camden, even as the kind of funding dried up under Thatcher, and it became much harder to actually achieve these sort of equalizing projects in practice, the aim and the ideals really lasted a long time um before they really finally came under more more pressure and gave way to something else but it was it was very sincere it was um we talk a lot about equalities uh equality still today but we are more inclined to think about these issues in the fr- instead of a framework of diversity which i think of as being um a less political framework or a very differently, at least a very differently political framework. But in this, in this period um, it was very sincere. There were real efforts to make work better for people in the public sector in the UK. And that I think are worth remembering because it's easy to forget (laughs) that there are models other than contemporary corporate capitalism for how work can fit within people's lives.
1: In chapter four, you talk about the family friendly private sector um, jobs. How, how was this framed?
0: Yeah. So I think what happened in the private sector was very different. And, um, I sort of, I talk about the private sector both because I think it's really been the enduring legacy of activism on behalf of working parents, unfortunately, and also because it's really in stands in contrast to what happened in the public sector. Um, and i think how it happened is also important so feminist activists who were working in you know left political circles in the 70s i didn't mention this when it when it came came to the, um the public sector but many of those activists went and worked within local government and it's also the case that that there were feminist activists who went and worked within business and uh, you know it was and is the case that there are progressive people in the corporate world as well and um Yeah, the the private sector, there are various reasons, but the private sector came under two things, I guess. One is that there were activists in the private sector who were trying to make change on behalf of women. So I write a lot about um, banking and the banking industry in Britain in this period, but there were women within banking who were really trying to emphasize to management that there were women who wanted to stay in their jobs after having children, that banks could benefit from and all industries could benefit from retaining women. And at the same time as feminists were really making that case in new ways inside of, you know, corporations, there were also new pressures affecting the labor market that were encouraging employers to want to recruit and retain women. Um, The number of, you know, new grads coming out of uh, universities was, Falling, and there was there was demographic pressure basically to rely more heavily on women's work, and so there was sort of an I- alignment between the aims of feminists to get more women uh, to remain in work and to have work adapt to some extent to their needs to, in order to do so, um, with you know corporate capitalism's needs to recruit and retain more women um, in this particular demographic moment, and so those things came together. And, you know, there are various interpretive frameworks for thinking about that. Um, some, some people in, you know, sociology and gender studies talk about perverse confluences between feminism and neoliberalism. And I think that that's true. I think that it's a little bit the case that ideas that feminists um, wanted as part of an i ide- kind of way of advancing equality were resignified in the context of corporate life and sort of capitalized on, um, but I think women who were very um, well intentioned and focused on improving work for, for women broadly were active in that process. Um, so I write about that in, in chapter four through the through the case uh, case study of the banking industry and especially the bank uh, NatWest.
1: In chapter five, you talk about the pursuit of having it all. Tell us some examples of what you were talking about in chapter five.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, the book mainly looks at the ways in which feminist ideas sought to, sought to challenge, uh, work and both at home and in the paid workplace for women, um, and how those ideas were incorporated or not in, in the workplace. Um, and my aim in that fifth chapter is a little bit different. Um, you know, working, we haven't really talked about this yet, but working a big part of what I talk about in the book is that working parenthood was a political framework. Um, it was a political idea. And when feminists in the seventies talked about working parents and working parenthood, the meanings of that were very different than the meanings that, were contained within the way that corporate employers talked about working parents. And so that's a big part of the story that I tell, but, and we could come back to that maybe if there's time, but at the, but in that fifth chapter, what I try to do is I try to look at working parenthood from a more cultural perspective. Um, over the course of the period from the 1970s, you know, and I, I basically go up to the millennium, but we could continue the story beyond that for sure. Um, more and more people began to identify as working parents instead of, for example, working mothers or just parents or some other formulation that would have been more impactful at a different moment in time. And so I look at, I look at what those identifications meant to people and how, and, and kind of raise the question of why do people identify as working parents? Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a formulation that emerged within feminist activism. And so I think it's quite interesting that it became um, language that was used much more generally well beyond feminist circles. You know, in the 1990s, all kinds of people talked about themselves as working parents. Many of them were even most of them not feminist in their orientation, particularly. And so the, the chapter is really about what that is and why. Um, And I, you know, what I suggest there is that it allowed people, it kind of had two functions. One is that talking about being a working parent allowed people, and when I say people, I mean both women and men, to talk about the stress and the exhaustion and the strain of trying to do it all and have it all. And at the same time, I think it actually allowed people to express their hopes for better working lives, for more equal marriages, for happier families. And so I think it was a really powerful language for people that resonated with with their experiences of trying to navigate greater expectations than ever for individual success while also um, taking care of children and taking care of communities.
1: From your research, do you think the policies have failed to deliver the needs of working families?
0: I definitely do. Um, I think we've failed so profoundly and it's, you know, the pandemic really, drove it home. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, working class women have always dealt with the conflicts between (laughs) paid work and taking care of children and households and work, you know, forever. And I think it's striking that it, you know, it, it has taken these kinds of moments where, um, middle class women in particular are subject to similar pressures for people to take, take those issues seriously. But, yeah, I mean, I think I just saw a statistic the other day. I think it's seventy-six or seventy-seven percent of American women now work uh, with with children. Now work for for pay as well. That's the vast majority, and I think that it is a strain for nearly all of those people, um, even the very well resourced, and many many who are not nearly so well resourced. Um, I think that the activists that I write about in this book don't feel like things have changed for the better for the most part. Um, you know, there were, uh, it's not all, it's not to be all doom and gloom. I think part of why I wrote this book is to look back and try to remember some of these ideas that were really inspiring. Like the idea of having community-based childcare that serves hyper local neighborhoods that is progressive in its orientation that is, you know, has hours that work for working parents. Like those ideas are still really important and we're still struggling to have enough childcare places. Um, I think part of why I wrote this book is to, is to go back and remember some of these ideas that were really inspiring and to think through where could we go next? Because advocating for the needs of working parents, we've been doing that now since the 1970s and it's not really working. You know, there've been various formulations, working parents, working families, work-life balance. None of it has really delivered on the kind of change that, that I think would really help people in the, in to work and care for their communities. But um yeah, I, I suppose I think we need all kinds of things to make that happen. One might be a different language for talking about it. Maybe talking about care and caring for communities, caring for camp families, caring work might be one way to do it. You know, another thing that I sp- have spent a lot of time thinking and worrying about <laughs> is probably the white, right word, is the way we talk about work. Um, in the 1970s, feminists were determined to talk about the work about the, it's hard to even talk about with this saying work, but we're determined to talk about the experiences we all have inside of households, taking care of houses, taking care of children, taking care of relatives as work, as a way of, of valuing it and acknowledging that it was effortful and giving it status that is commensurate with the status of paid work. And I think that's so important. And we needed a language for doing that, but in a way it's become sort of a trap because I think there's something very different about caring for children, caring for our partners, our our parents, our families, our communities than paid work. And that maybe valuing it and talking about it in a different language might help us to escape some of the pitfalls of just everything being work all the time. So I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about that piece, but um, yeah.
1: Now tell us the overall message you want. The reader to leave with once they finish your book.
0: Well, that's tricky. Um I guess, yeah, I guess there are a few. I think one is that Working Parenthood was transformed from basically a feminist project to remake work and family into a, an economic project that was managed by corporations and by individuals. Um it was a depolit it was a story of depoliticization. Uh, or at least progressive depoliticization. And I think that that's um that's one message that I want people to take away. Um, I also think it's, you know, kind of what I was talking about a minute or two ago, like I don't think feminism has been eaten up by neoliberalism and erased. I think the idea, the ideals of feminism at its best, it, in its most intersectional form, have not disappeared, and we can kind of resurrect the ones that are useful for the present. I think that's another one. Um, I also think that, you know, what we think of as neoliberal capitalism, it would look very different were it not for the influence of feminist activism. And so it's good to remember that even even if the kind of overarching story is one of feminist ideas being sort of co-opted or absorbed into this very different kind of political economic framework, I think by sort of keeping track of the ways in which feminist activism trailed off in some unexpected directions can be helpful to sort of avoiding a totalizing account that's really closes off other kinds of political imagination of different, different outcomes. Um, so I think for example, that some of the more utopian ideas of second wave feminists about the restructuring of intimate life have endured, um, in a hopefulness about the possibilities of marriage and partnership, um, I think that you know the the new not, we we live now in a world in which paid work even if it hasn't actually changed that much to support parents better except for some very sort of narrow categories of workers I think that employers now talk about personal and emotional lives in the workplace and I think that one way of seeing that is that it's sort of the traditionally female concern of family is now really in the center of of debates about Contemporary debates about work and public life. And I think the politics of that are complicated, but I think it has some hopeful strands. Um, And then I I also think it's just worth remembering that the way in which corporate capitalism incorporated feminist ideas and sort of understood the working parent and has sort of talked to us about the working parent is not the only way that work can work differently. I think remembering things like the way that Camden um, supported its staff through equal opportunities policies within a broader commitment to overcoming discrimination is really powerful and and worth remembering. Um, Yeah, I think those are some of the things I hope that people take
1: away. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
0: Oh gosh, I don't know yet. Um, I am no longer an academic. Um, I have two very young children. (laughs) So I sort of wrote this book about working parenthood and then became a working parent right after. So it's all, it's all sort of overdetermined, but I am doing other forms of writing. I write about some of these issues, um, for more popular outlets now, less academic ones. And, um, Yeah, right now I'm working on a piece about real estate, which I think is another interesting area. So I'm not sure where I'm headed next, but I think I will continue to be preoccupied by these questions about how we spend our time, what work means um, for, for a long time.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and we look forward to hearing about your other projects in the future.
0: Thanks so much for having me.